This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Robin Petrovich and Catherine Bailey about their qualifications to run Heath Ceramics. I threw a pot in high school. One pot. Yeah, it was pretty good. Also, why they don't advertise. It's better to be interesting than to hire somebody to make you sound interesting when you're not. Here's Debbie Millman. Heath Ceramics is a storied tableware and tile company in San Francisco. It was founded by Edith and Brian Heath in 1948. In 2003, the company was bought by another talented couple, Robin Petrovich and Catherine Bailey. They turned the Heath store in the Mission District into a must-see for anyone interested in ceramics and tile or in just a great retail experience. Their work at Heath just won them the 2015 Cooper Hewitt National Design Award, and last month they came out with a book, Tile Makes the Room, Good Design from Heath Ceramics. Robin and Catherine, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Catherine, you are practically a New York native. You were raised in New Jersey, and I read that you lived in a split-level colonial built in the era of pink tile and mushroom brown appliances. Has that influenced your design style in any way? I'm not sure. (laughs) It's hard to say. I think it didn't mean very much to me, those kind of things growing up. It was very kind of nondescript. It wasn't anything anyone really talked about, those kind of brownish appliances and some floral wallpaper. But it wasn't really um, important, I don't think, to my family. But also growing up in my town, um, my dad worked in an amazing Saarinen building. And that, I remember, felt like the future a bit, even though at the time it wasn't brand new. It, it was an amazing, the space made you feel a certain way when you went in. It was really memorable. So maybe more of that than the split-level colonial. When did you realize that you wanted to have a career in design? Well, you know, being in high school, you're trying to go, what? What is it? <laughs> what are, What excites you? And I was interested in graphic design and I had a great high school art teacher, and um, she sent me out to Carnegie Mellon University to do, um, they did the summer program where you got kind of immersed in all the different things you could study in college. And that's where I found industrial design. So I was quite lucky because I went to college knowing I really enjoyed three-dimensional objects, and I wanted to work three-dimensionally, not two-dimensionally. Something about that just seemed more fascinating to me. And also there was like a little bit of technical stuff that went around it, the kind of real problem-solving part of it. So I didn't really understand it all. It just had, you know, each of those things had a certain appeal. I know you went to Syracuse University, and I believe your first job out of college was at Nike. It's true. That's amazing to go straight from school to Nike. How did you get that first job? Well, they were recruiting, so that was <laughs> that was who came to Syracuse. There was a few other companies, but that was interesting to me. But funny, at the time, you know, this was like 1990, and it, Nike wasn't as, I mean, they were 
they were well known. They were still big, but it wasn't like being a footwear designer wasn't something very renowned at that time. And um, I remember my professors saying, you know, really, do you want to do that? It's just like graphic design and you study to do, you know, something more and solve problems and you're just being like a stylist. And they weren't, wow. weren't really super excited about it at the time, but I was. And there's also something about going to another part of the country when you're in that age that is really empowering. And it was a really wonderful way to start a design career because the company cared deeply about design um, and exposing their designers to a lot of what was going on in the world. They saw a lot of value in that. So it was a great place to get exposed. You stayed at Nike for five years before you moved to San Francisco, and I read that you thought working at Nike was a great experience, but learned that you didn't want to have a small part in a big company. At that point, what did you think you wanted to do? I wasn't sure at all. I just knew what it felt like to kind of have a very small job and to not be able to really make change at a company. You know, and I wasn't the kind of designer that really felt like, you know, my calling was to personally obsessed over all the details. I really was more bothered by the bigger things that I couldn't change and I had an opinion about and all that kind of stuff. So it just felt like whatever path I took there wasn't going to get me where I wanted to be. Did you design any memorable sneakers while you were at Nike? They're not memorable to me at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I designed a lot of the women's footwear. Yeah, they had pink on them and stuff. I don't know. Uh, can I add that when I first met Kathy, I went to her parents' house and, and after a little while, and her mother had renderings that Kathy had done at Nike framed over the fireplace. Wow. So her mother was very proud of Her mother of her was work. proud, yeah. yeah. So, Robin, you were born in England. You moved to New Jersey as well. You moved there when you were eight years old. I think there's, at least from my perspective, there's something wonderfully serendipitous about that, given that you actually met on the West Coast, but both were living in New Jersey as you were growing up. Yeah, I think, I think serendipity is, is, has played a role in our lives. <laughs> I mean, we didn't grow up in, like, the same town or anything, yeah. but I guess it is interesting. I mean, we were both looking to kind mm-hmm. of see different things and get out, so there was there's some... Well, it would have been really amazing if we'd met at a Bruce Springsteen concert in San Francisco or something like that. Yeah, yeah. that would have been That cool. actually would have... I think you should just tell people cool. that. Yeah. Yeah. That's our yeah. new story yeah. from yeah. now on. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Robin, you come from a family of research physicists. Both mm-hmm. your mother and father worked at Princeton. Were they hoping that you were going to go into science as well? Absolutely. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I was definitely uh, drilled with the idea of... Science is the only important type of career, and I think it took a little bit of time for me to figure out what it was I really enjoy doing and what I wanted to do, and and, and my discovery of design was I had no idea that design as a discipline existed when I was growing up and when I was in high school and even through college, and it was only somehow through when I finally somehow stumbled across a copy of you know ID Magazine back then really dates me, right? Not really. So, uh, <laughs> I think it's wonderful that it had that kind of influence on it, you. Yeah, and uh, it, was the only, it was really only that. It was, it was ID Magazine, and I found out, wow, you, this is actually a job. This is great, designing products. And, and that's what sort of set me on that path. But it was you know, after college and then going to grad school is where I really started to pursue that. So you went to Tufts University and then on to Stanford University. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and you did graduate work in design. At that point, did mm-hmm. you have a sense that you wanted to go into industrial design or any specific kind of design? Yeah, I mean that was the that was sort of the discovery and and um, you know sort of between college and grad school of of design. And I was living in New York, uh, you know, right after school and, and doing a little bit of freelance work for furniture makers and building a portfolio and and. And, and, and engaging in, in, in sort of, you know, working with my hands and then applying to graduate school. So I applied to a number of graduate schools around the, of the country. I think I got into all the ones I applied to, and I remember talking to my, my future professor at Stanford, Matt Kahn, kind of, you know, what am I going to get out of it? Give me the quantitative, you know, good stuff. And instead he said something and that is so memorable to me. It was something like, some people like to stay on the same coast of their families, and some like to go and explore and, and you know go far away. And I thought, well, that's an interesting thing to, way to look at it. Just kind of go on an adventure and try something new, and and that became the allure of the West Coast. And it wasn't the answer I was expecting at all, but it was very much, I think, the answer I was looking for. And it turned out to be a, a wonderful decision, and that was the start of uh, of it. I think between Tufts and Stanford, you were a temp in an investment bank. Is that correct? I did do that for a while. I tried a lot of different things. I find a lot of things interesting. It's all very foreign, but you know, I I do like to kind of dabble a little bit, and uh, it's it's amazing you unearthed that. Do you have like an old ID badge of mine or something like that from from Goldman Sachs? Um, but it's so far from what you know, what I what I was interested in, and and you know, just but you're making furniture and you're trying to make money at the same time, and and you know, so kind of living that kind of a life of, of of trying to balance a little bit of an artistic life with having to actually pay the bills. Well, since you run the business aspect mm-hmm. of Heath, I was thinking, hmm, I wonder if he picked up some really like important knowledge in that temp investment bank experience. I don't know if I did. I mean, I, mean, I think I. I think the important knowledge I might have picked up is the idea that I didn't want to spend a career creating creating paper. And I think in my future in, 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 in design consulting and really what led us to do what we do at Heath, I had the same sort of feeling of I'm just making paper. I'm just putting things on paper and stacks of paper and, and making copies of paper and presentations and reports that have a validity of about two days. Yeah, it sounds a bit soul-crushing. Yeah, and, and, and that sort of seemed like that was the what I really wanted to get away from. Catherine, by then you had decided to start your own firm, One & Company, and you were working for clients like Motorola and Microsoft and Procter and & Gamble. You were finally introduced by mutual friends in 2000. So you both had this very interesting parallel path, New Jersey, West Coast, industrial design you have some friends that mutually introduce you was it love at first sight did you was it like <laughs> it's boom. a little it's I'll a let little, Kathy take that story <laughs> it's a little more complicated to see things usually are right they don't <laughs> simple no we met a little earlier than 2000 we got together in 2000 oh. we were friends for probably two three years I think before oh, friends first friends and we worked together so we were already working together I think I was yeah he wasn't interested it's true. And then <laughs> he's looking somewhat horrified at the moment, <laughs> listeners. We, we have people that work for us outside who are listening to us. Now. It's true. No, but what we got to know each other. So by the time we got together in 2000 and we knew each other really well, we had been friends and we had been working together. So, and I guess he changed his mind. 
<laughs> I mean, I think we have a relationship based on, on, on working together. You know, that's the basis for, I think, a lot of our relationship, and, and somehow it works, and we're still a couple. And, you know, I know we're going to talk about the book at, hopefully at some point, but somebody said to me the other day about, wow, you did a book together with your wife. It's like, just add that to the list of things you shouldn't do together with your spouse. <laughs> and, and, and it is a little bit like that. We kind of take on these things. Yeah, we run a business. We see each other every day. We have a bad day at work. There's nobody to go home to because actually the person you're going home it to might be the person. Uh, That's why you have two giant dogs, day. right? <laughs> the dogs help a lot. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Dogs and children help a lot. I think as soon as, you know, the, the, you know we had a uh, our son Jasper is now 10 and, and he came in 2005. So we bought Heath in 2003. Kathy was pregnant in 2004. And at the time it seemed like, oh, my God, I'm taking out a lot. But then. If we didn't have a child, we would have consumed ourselves a little too much, I think, in what we were doing at Heath and especially back then. So it provides those things all provide balance as hard as it is still is for the two of us to go home and, and, and feel balanced. That, yeah, we yeah. might have lost. Mm-hmm. The dog doesn't give a crap about HR. <laughs> <laughs> so this is my last question before we start talking about Heath. It's sort of the moment right before Heath. Um, I read as you began to collaborate more and more with the work that you were doing, you realized that you wanted to work on projects from start to finish. But at that time, you didn't know what you wanted to do. You, what you did know was what you didn't want to do. And that was what you were doing. I love that line. that I, I think it's in, in the book. You knew what you didn't want to do, and that's what it was that you were doing. So in 2002, everything changes. Yeah, we had our eyes open. We had all kinds of crazy things we were starting to think of, but we were we're kind of at the beginning of like, what should we do? Maybe we need to leave this town. We need to go somewhere else. But the first thing we did is moved out of San Francisco, I think, you know, to kind of satisfy that itch of making some change. And we bought a house in Sausalito. And that is where we found Heath. So it was back to the serendipity. I think, again, it was, we were only exploring the town kind of with our eyes open and saw this building and um, it and you found it on a heat. hike, right? You were walking on a hike and saw this building? I think we're biking around town or walking. There's different stories. <laughs> we were taking, we were taking we the were, new puppy to the vet across the street. It might have been that. Been that. You know, something yeah. like that. Again, it's like very serendipitous kind of moments. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, I think we, you know, on the one hand, we knew what we didn't want to do. But I think at the same time, we knew what we wanted to do. It's just sometimes it's. It's it's a little bit harder to express. I think overall we're getting better and better in expressing what we want to do as opposed to what we, what we don't want to do. But I think that, you know, what was missing for us and what we needed and what we do now with Heath is we want to have control over the whole picture. So you're either hiking, biking, taking your puppy to the vet or um, something else. You come upon a 50-year-old pottery studio quite by accident. Um, you didn't know much about pottery at the time. I think, Catherine, you've said that you knew about this much, and that's about a quarter of an inch that I'm I'm measuring with my fingers. I knew about half of that. <laughs> yeah. I threw a pot in high school. One pot. Yeah, it was pretty good. So, so what gave you the sense that you could buy a factory, a studio, uh, a ceramic studio, and, and continue this, this business? We were trained as designers, you know, that's kind of what you do. You figure stuff out. You know, we kind of went to school for that. We have that, that itch is, you know, we have that itch. It's, it's more than, I think it's more than being an entrepreneur. It's, it's combining entrepreneurism with 
you know, that love of the design process, about how you go around figuring things out. And, and that's the but excitement But you had no experience in pot throwing. And this mm-hmm. business wasn't exactly a, a robust, long line out the door business. From mm-hmm. what I understand, it was a ghost building and a time capsule. Mm-hmm. And they were still using typewriters. Mm-hmm. That's true. But that made it even better mm-hmm. because we weren't having to get a massive amount of investment to buy something and kind of leverage this thing where we had people who needed to make a lot of money off it. It, it was just a simple business that had a little bit of money coming in. A more going out, which we knew wasn't going to work, so we had to fix that. But I think both of us, and Robin in particular, always have this approach as, you know, there's someone out there who's better or knows more about these things than we do, and all we have to do is find them and talk to them and either find the answers or get them involved. And that's how we went about that process. It was just, you know, it wasn't anybody technical or anybody who knew anything about clay or pottery. It was like, well, this is a business actually a transaction needs to happen. How would we do that? But I also remember Robin went, well, you know, I took a class. I wrote a business plan in college. I mean, you know, I, I, and he's like, I think I still have the book. And so he went down in the basement and mm-hmm. got the book out. You guys are really brave. <laughs> yeah. It was called, it was, a, it was a classic academic book called um, The MBA in Entrepreneurship. I thought you were going <laughs> to say business class. plans for dummies. <laughs> no, it wasn't that. Do they have that now? I guess they do. This is a, a thicker, more boring kind of book. And, and, and I'd written a, a business plan for a, a grad school class for a technology company. And I just basically took the same template and did that. I like doing spreadsheets and, and, and you know, it's nice to figure those things out. And, and I think with something like, you know, the way you described the company, for us it's exciting because we, we like to be a little bit contrarian, you know. So, what does oh, that mean? What do you mean? It means like, oh, that's not going to work. Well, we're going to make it work then. Oh, you know, okay. It, so it's, fly in the face of the contrarian. Yeah, and do things a little bit. Uh, uh, well, we like to be contrarian to, I guess, mainstream thinking or conservative thinking of how do you make something work. You know, we like that challenge. But there was also something to me that happened when we first got to walk through this factory. And it all, like, made total sense. Like, why, why should this not work? I mean, it's all here. It's a wonderful... It, it was the way things used to be done in the past, you know, at a scale that used to be common, you know, a smaller scale business. You did everything. You fixed everything. You had some guy who could fix things. You know, there was there wasn't outsourcing of everything and getting experts in to solve the problems. You just figured it out. And it was I guess I mean, it was a simple business in that way. It didn't. You walked around. And you went, well, we could. This is really wonderful. Um, because in doing our bigger projects, working for big companies, it's not like that at all. It's not really possible for one person to, w- to walk around and really understand the, the kind of core of the business. And we felt like we could. It was really cool. So Edith Heath, from from what I understand, was was quite an extraordinary glazer. And her creations were featured in mid-century exhibitions at San Francisco's Legion of Honor and New York. Museum of Modern Art. Some of her early advocates included Frank Lloyd Wright and Saarinen. You wrote to Edith Heath about buying the business. At that point, she was 93. Uh, She had dementia Mm -hmm. and she didn't respond. Mm -hmm. What did you do then? Well, we I think we forgot about it for a couple months. And then we I don't know, we found ourselves back there and we asked. Um, So we, we were there and said, what, what's going on with this place? And um, they said it, it really does need to be sold, otherwise it will close down. And so that got us quite a bit more motivated. We got a phone number 
of a woman who was then the trustee who was taking care of the business and trying to organize it to pass into other hands. And um, Robin called. So we were at that point, we went, okay, time to take action. <laughs> this really needs to, something needs to happen. Yeah, and the trustee, uh, her name's Jay Stewart, and she's, you know, so much credit goes to her and along with other people for making this work. You know, when after Edith passed away, she found the letter that we'd written to her originally. And, I think and unopened. I think, I think maybe it was unopened. Now, this business was not making any money when you bought it, yet when you bought it, you kept the 24 employees that mm-hmm. were working there. How did you manage to make that work financially? And, and what was the motivation in, in keeping all 24? Well, it was understaffed even at 24. I mean, there wasn't really enough people to run it properly. It just felt like well, we didn't know more than anybody else, so we needed to kind of learn learn from them and some people stayed on after a few months. A few people decided to leave, and um, some people are still there today. So it just was getting to know people. And then, it, I mean, we always do things like, well, what's the next step? What's the next problem? What's the problem today? What do we need to solve? And um, going back and forth between that and then trying to step back and go, where do we want to be a year from now? That's how we've worked. You know, Jay, the trustee, really wanted to make sure that these people. Uh, I mean, I'll speak a little bit, you know, sort of about her relationship with her and, and why things work so well. She cared about, she cared very deeply. The Heaths didn't have any children, so Jay was like the uh, the daughter of, the, of their best friends. And, and so she cared deeply about them. She cared deeply about Heath as and the legacy. And so she, you know, she wanted to make sure that that stayed. So it wasn't about selling the business to her to make money and liquidate the trust. It was about how do I make sure this continues and how do I find the right people to do that. So we had a very strong alignment. And in, in, in this is a very early lesson for us. And, you know, you work with people you're aligned with and make sure that's clear from the beginning. Things are going to work out very well. If you don't do that, they'll often fall apart. So she wanted to continue. And so, you know, there were a couple of stakes that we put on the ground initially. And, what and, were they? and it was about these people are going to get to keep their jobs. We're going to make a go of it. We're not going to move the manufacturing anywhere else. And because, you know, having the manufacturing under that same roof is part of the whole desire to have design and manufacturing closer together to be able to uh, do good work, you know, and control that process. It wasn't about, oh, business to make money. It was about how do we do better work. And so those are the stakes in the ground. And when you put stakes in the ground like that, then your design process and thinking takes over around, well, how do I then build around that to make that successful? Catherine, you set the direction and the creative vision as creative director, and you moved Heath's creative direction forward while still being able to authentically honor the history and the craft that Edith Heath pioneered. How have you managed to do that? Well, I mean, it's changed as time goes on. You know, it's not stagnant, but but in the beginning, it was really about looking at what – I think we tried to look back in time and go, well, what was the essence of Heath when it was started? What was it founded upon? What were kind of the values of the product? What was the aesthetic based on? And digging around to kind of just emphasize that. So the first thing we did is really cut down and kind of got to the essence of the product. So we had to discontinue things and then um, work with color a lot. Some of the color – was kept. So some of the glazes that I felt like represented well the different eras that Heath had been created in were kept, but new ones were added. So 
in that way, it could have both. You know, it was moving forward, but it was also preserving the past. And that's always what we want it to do. But with that, it wasn't just the product. You know, we knew in order for it to be successful, we had to be able to tell the story and make it interesting and appealing to people. People have to want to have to have it, buy it and put in their homes today. Otherwise, we're not going to have the support to kind of pay the bills and make this whole thing work. Creating the story around it or um, telling the story around it. We didn't need to create anything. All we had to do was tell the story and make a website so that people could see it and those type of things. We always have this core belief in building on things that are good. And, you know, you can take away the things that are not working and are not good, but the things that are good are important to keep because that's the legacy and that's kind of where the soul starts from. You know, it's a little bit like having that um, mother yeast, you know, it's it's you, you build upon that and you continue it. I think it really comes through in the spaces that we've worked with and worked in and evolved. So the original factory, we've worked on upkeeping it and preserving it and trying to make it work for our business today. But it's really a great design and we love it. So it's also restrictive in some ways. So having the opportunity to make our new building in San Francisco It also is an old building, but we were able to take it. It didn't have the Heath history in it, so we could take it and really make it what we want Heath to be today. So that was a really, really exciting project and significant, I think. I read that you're still making everything pretty much the same way that it's always been made at Heath, except the way you dry things. Yeah, there's a little bit more to that. I mean, I mean, there's some more things that we've changed. We've we've put in new machinery and equipment, but but at the, its essence, you know, when when we think about the production process and the equipment that we use and the way they're used to form our pieces, you know, if you can improve upon that to make things better, to to be able to be a little bit more efficient without changing the nature of the final product, there's no reason not to do that. There is something really magical about the character of the work that's made at Heath. I first became aware of your work having dinner at Chez Panisse, Alice Waters' restaurant. You created a special set of dishes, and I had to look and see who made them because they were imbued with the soul that you're talking about. And for an object to have that much soul embedded into it is not only remarkable, but also really, really rare. How do you create that? How do you make that soul? You know, there is something. You you hold the piece in your hands and it feels a certain way. It feels like it has a soul in it. But I think there's so much care and attention. Everybody who touches that plate really cares about it. They're really attached to it. It's something that, you know, we're making these things in their community it's their place. All that kind of does go into it. Edith Heath designed the original clay. We're still using that clay. It has a lot of care that went into exactly what it should look like and how it should form. So there's those kind of things. The glazes are all new that we've developed in-house, and we obsess over that. And so that comes through. To jump onto what Robin said, I think most people who walk through the factory maybe 30 years ago and walk through today they probably wouldn't notice the differences. We're really close to it, and so, yeah, there's some new machines. But the essence of, you know, how we're making this stuff compared to how most things are made on a much larger scale, it's it's quite different. But the pieces are all still very much touched by hand through a lot of the steps in between. And I heard a recent story um, that one of our production managers told us about one of the trimmers 
you trim the edges of the pieces after they're formed to make them smooth before they're, they're glazed. And they said that this person told the story about how they went to a restaurant that used Heath, and they had a really fun time picking out which one of the trimmers trimmed each of the plates that were on the table. Interesting. Because they could tell mm-hmm. the difference. Because they're all a little bit different. They all have a little bit of their own technique. They have and character. Yeah. They have a personality. Well, there's different people that put their sort of pride into making those individual pieces. And, and to them, they can pick that out, that level of detail. And so I think to everybody else, they sense that, but they don't know what it is. Let's talk about your new book. Tile Makes the Room, Good Design from Heath Ceramics. The book is gorgeous. It showcases design that pairs tile with other elements in a room, ultimately creating a balanced and naturally integrated book that transcends trends. I want to start by talking about the title, Why Tile Makes the Room. It felt right. <laughs> it was the first idea, and it's it stuck. the first thing we thought of because it really is just what the concept for the book was. We didn't want to make a book just about the design of tiles. Although that is included. Yeah, there's some of that in there too. But the real meat of the book is about tile and design and so how tile can make a beautiful interior or or an exterior, but design. And and that's what we really wanted to focus on. So it's like, you know, the tile can be the star of the room, but it doesn't have to be. It's really more a book about design. So tile makes the room and it it's interesting as as we went through and I was putting together what should we put in the book, what should we not put in the book, that was always something we asked each other and said, well, does the tile make the room? So it's really a book about interior design, you know, more than and not a book about designing tiles. And, and the realization through our years of making tile and designing tile that even if we make the most beautiful tile and give it to somebody, it doesn't mean that it's going to become a wonderful installation. There's so much more that has to go into the design of how to use it and the care and craft and the installation of it that's going to make something a wonderful space. And that's what's really important. Many, many decades ago, one of my brothers got a job, one of his first jobs out of school. He was having a really hard time finding a job as a lighting salesman. And I was a bit skeptical about him being a lighting salesman. I knew he would do really well when he said, what are you talking about? Light is the psychology of a room. (laughs) And as I was reading your book, I realized that that sentence came back to me and I realized Mm -hmm. it's not light so Mm -hmm. much. It's the textures Mm -hmm. of a room that create Mm -hmm. the psychology. And it felt like I could understand who was living in these spaces Mm -hmm. by understanding the decisions that they were making about Mm -hmm. the decor and very much about the tile. Mm -hmm. You start the book by boldly stating, we create the spaces we inhabit around the lives we lead. Well, the reason we we said that is we're trying to set up, you know, why would we write a book about tile? We have a tile factory. Does that really (laughs) give us the authority to write a book about tile? But that is how we live. I mean, and that's what we've done is in designing this business and We've created these environments in our home and in our business that that affect how we live, how our business runs, how we relate to people, how we feel. I mean, we're really conscious of it. It's kind of a big deal to us. Well, it feels very holistic. You you do talk about how tile is really not a new idea, um, that it's been in use for nearly 5,000 years, though today 
it feels to us relatively untapped, not typically celebrated, perhaps even unappreciated, which makes it so easy and so exciting to work with. But do you think that we're now, looking at this book, I was thinking, well, we're living in a tile renaissance now. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't feel like it's unappreciated at all. It feels like it's sort of the centerpiece of any, it should be the centerpiece of any redesign. Or am I just drinking the Kool-Aid because I love the book? It does feel like it's it's happening. I mean, in the 12 years that we've had Heath, it's a big change and people kind of opening their eyes and going, wow, this is really, this is a significant material. And I think people's level of understanding of it is definitely grown in general. But in writing the book, it was like what was missing sometimes is is pulling it all together because it's be, almost becoming so common to, oh, you just slap the tile in this way and all of a sudden your room looks more expensive. So you state that nothing needs to be too expensive or rare, but it must have intention the ability to gain a patina over time and to tell a story. And it does feel as if all of the objects that you make, whether it's tile, whether it's tableware, it all is imbued with this story that you talked about before. Is that something that you're very conscious of maintaining or do you feel like that's just part of the DNA of the brand now? That's how the two of us naturally do things. We don't think about it. We're unconscious about it. And the big challenge for us in a lot of ways is to put that in the DNA of the brand for, for other people because we work with so many other people. Yeah, it feels like once you start to articulate the story, it feels more manufactured than authentic, which is the the reason I kind of hate the word storytelling mm-hmm. because it somehow feels that it's manipulative as opposed to just natural. I mean, one of our philosophies early on is that we don't do advertising and, and because it's better to do creative things that will tell their own story because they're real. right. And advertising tends to look for things that are or, – or to create hyperbole around things. And so it's better to be interesting than to hire somebody to make you sound interesting when you're not. You have a wonderful philosophy when it comes to decorating. Bring in objects that you love and somehow they will all work together. And you state, as long as you're true to yourself, it will work. There will be consistency. I've found in, in decorating a new home, it's it's hard to find things that you really love. I think people sometimes rush to buy things in order to fill up empty space. Why do you think we rush the process so? I think culturally now that's the way you see happen. You're watching these shows on TV where it's all done instantly. instantly. And you're opening catalogs where it's, you know, you kind of want to jump right in and live in that room, but not really, if you think about it, you know, but we're just conditioned that way. I think when you do step in a room that's real, you know, that's living and it's built over time, you know, you feel it and you just realize the little things that kind of grow over time and how right they feel and how much you love them. And we get really nostalgic over this stuff too. At the same time, sometimes, you know, waiting to get your dining room table. Until, well, that's, that's you know. not really – I'm not talking about shipping. <laughs> I'm yeah. really talking about finding and yeah. that thing that sings to you, that thing that sort of makes you feel alive. Well, there's a lot of stuff out there, right? And, 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 and somehow you need to curate it or have it be curated for you. And I think when we're saying that and trying to articulate how we're thinking about furnishing room and just – building our life of stuff that actually gives meaning to us. It is sometimes hard to put it through the filter, like, do I really love this? Or did I see it in a magazine from something else that I kind of loved the idea of? And so you kind of have to, you have to strip it back and really, and, and really look inside and go, what, what is it about it that's resonating? And is it really resonating? 
I want to close the show with a quote from Catherine. I read an article wherein the writer asked you for your best decorating advice, and you replied, Acquire fewer things and only things you really love. You'll spend more time enjoying your environment and less time searching for new stuff that ends up in the landfill anyway. Robin and Catherine, thank you so much for being on Telling Matters today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Robin Petrovich and Catherine Bailey's new book is called Tile Makes the Room, Good Design from Heath Ceramics. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.